Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast where you will find insight analysis and the story behind the numbers. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Business Lines State of the Economy podcast. Today we have with us Mr. Vijayanand Samudrala, the president of Amara Raja Advanced Cell Technologies, which is one of the leading companies in the electric vehicle battery manufacturing space in the country. Mr. Samudrala is a senior member of the Corporate Management Council at Amara Raja Group, which he joined in 1992. He was also the CEO of Amara Raja Energy and Mobility, the group's flagship firm. An active proponent of the adoption of new and emerging technologies in e-mobility, renewable energy and advanced energy storage. He is also a National Council member at the industry body the confederation of indian industry amara raja is a well known name in the battery space and owns the amaran brand it is also one of the country's largest manufacturers of automotive and industrial batteries now for india to hit net zero by 2070 evs will play a very critical role understandably the government has increased its focus on promoting evs through initiatives such as fame The government is also targeting an EV penetration of 30% by 2030 which also means that the country needs to aggressively build the EV supply chains of which lithium ion batteries will be a critical component now battery storage is the key to india's clean energy transition and associated with this are issues such as availability of critical minerals components and technologies amara raja is ag- Amara Raja is aggressively expanding in this space adopting upcoming technologies to accelerate the move towards a robust supply chain ecosystem in line with this it is setting up a giga factory spread across 265 acres in Devitpally Hyderabad with a capacity of 16 gigawatt hours today mr samudrala will take us to an in-depth journey on the growth of the battery ecosystem in the country my question to you mr samudrala is how is the ev battery landscape in india emerging and how is it evolving rishi for having me here on this podcast the electrification of mobility in india has started in all earnestness about 6 7 years ago when the government has really pushed the uh, expectations and policy to decarbonize transportation of course we moved from bharat 4 to bharat 6 from emission control perspective alternate fuels have been encouraged but uh, way back in 2016 17 is when we really heard a very emphatic expectation setting from the government but uh, the real traction picked up post covid uh, there been attempts before that but uh, in terms of the growth in number of electric vehicles produced and sold in this country the real traction actually has picked up post covid but you see that it's happening more in certain segments of the vehicles and not across the board two wheelers and three wheelers are the ones that are ramping up in terms of adoption of electrification in the mobility sector uh, whereas the passenger vehicles and the commercial vehicle segment including buses and trucks it's happening in a relatively slow manner now we are at the very beginning of the whole growth curve so i don't think what happened in the last 3 4 years is uh, you know an indication of what's likely to happen over the next say 6 years or 10 years period 
Uh, we at Amaraja look at this transition to electric mobility in uh, two distinct phases. Phase one is where we are going through right now, where aggressive adoption is happening on the two-wheelers and three-wheelers, because the use case and the total cost of ownership has been fairly well established in some of the two-wheeler and three-wheeler mobility applications, and uh, that tribe is only going up. Uh, this will continue uh, bringing it to what we consider as perhaps a tipping point of adoption over the next three to five year period. Then we will see the adoption of electric mobility in the passenger vehicle segment picking up. Right now, it's constrained on various factors, which we can dwell deeper later. But uh, as we see more and more action happening in this field, you know, strong chain getting established, the total cost of ownership becoming more favorable for uh, passenger vehicles, the adoption rate there might also go up. But that's likely to happen perhaps a little later during this period. That's where we are positive about it. It's a huge opportunity. And uh, the stakeholders like us see this as a, uh, you know, a critical juncture where we need to put our resources behind and be prepared for the growth that's expected in the sector. So, as you were explaining that uh, the first uh, talk uh, about it happened in 2016-17, but it's the, the ecosystem really picked up post-COVID. With respect to the acceleration in, uh, you know, government's intent and government's efforts towards this, if you could, you know, break down the policy thirst that the government has uh, given to EVs uh, for our listeners. And how has it helped, you know, uh, providing more momentum to the sector? We refer to the, you know, energy path that India will have to take to reach there by 2070. We would consider that there are three critical pillars of energy transition as part of net zero because energy is at the core of net zero. And those three pillars are one, grid decarbonization. Government has taken very strong measures in the space. Uh, we've seen you know, significant and appreciable acceleration in uh, renewable energy deployment in the country. Right now, uh, the target is to get to 500 gigawatts of renewable energy, which would mean the country will have to add about 40, 50 gigawatts of renewable energy as we go forward on an annual basis. The second pillar is industrial decarbonization. And uh, here, hydrogen is going to play a very key role. And uh, rightfully so, the government has set a vision that we should have a target of for 5 million metric tons of green hydrogen production annually. But I know our focus is about transportation, and hence the third pillar is transport decarbonization. And this is where there are multiple uncertainties, say, five, seven years ago. One is about technology uncertainty. The second is about the government policy uncertainty. And of course, the third is about the demand uncertainty. So if you were to focus on the government policy, there have been many measures that the government has taken while it started setting up expectations on the industry players and stakeholders. But there have been some very definitive policy initiatives that the government took. For example, the FAME 2 has been fairly successful. A 10,000 crore budgetary allocation is made. FAME 2 is coming to an end by end of March. The utilization of the budget is fairly healthy not uniform across target segments, but fairly healthy. And a lot of two-wheeler growth uh, is uh, uh, you know, related to the FAME subsidies. 
then there is this ACC PLI, the you know, production linked incentive for advanced cell chemistry product that's been announced and uh, almost 18,100 crores of budgetary allocation was made. The primary objective of the government here is to build cell manufacturing ecosystem domestically because even today, most of the cells or all of the cells that go into e-mobility application in India are imported. And uh, it's important that we need to build a domestic manufacturing ecosystem and ACCPLI is seen as a catalyst in that. An 18,100 crore budgetary allocation is made. Then, of course, the auto PLI to identify champion OEMs and the champion, component champions, uh, about 26,000 crore uh, budgetary allocation is there. Uh, so far, we already have uh, three OEs and one component manufacturer qualified for this, and the journey continues. Now, there is, uh, you know, cumulatively close to about 57,000 crores worth of uh, incentives have been announced across the FAME incentive scheme, the ACCPLA scheme and the auto PLA scheme. Now, apart from this, each of the states have come up with their own EV policies. Some of the states are very proactive in this space, but I mean, there are many, many states who have talked about, you know, EV specific policy. Uh, in the entire value chain, starting from manufacturing to charging networks to uh, you know the vehicle uh, on the road to getting some incentives in terms of road tax breaks and things like that, that can vary anywhere between fifteen to thirty thousand crores if you were to really look at the potential there. So I think the policy uncertainty is more or less kind of behind us. Of course, there are execution challenges that need to be addressed, but at least the policy intent and policy documents are very clearly saying that government is committed to transport uh, transition as far as the decarbonization is concerned. One supplementary question with this, um, there's quite a uh, quite a healthy amount of financial resources that have been generated inside India uh, for the clean energy transition. However, as you would agree that... Uh, uh, the the financial requirements are staggering for uh, for this industrial and transport decarbonization. Uh, so, how is the in global investor interest right now with respect to specifically the EV space? Uh, uh, since you are you you are a play, uh, big player in this, uh, how how do you see this uh, global investor interest? Should see the global uh, uh, investors into three buckets. Those who are financial investors, which means they're willing to back up projects of this nature coming up in India. Then there are global manufacturers who have set up strong, uh, you know, gigafactory network of their own and uh, whether they would be interested to come to India. And of course, third is those who are willing to collaborate with the OEMs in India and create some kind of giant venture partnerships to be able to bring the you know the, the EV battery technology and also in some specific cases bring the EV battery manufacturing capacity to India i think the interest across these three buckets varies i would consider that uh, the financial investors are very positive about you know the entire EV transition happening in India and uh, i believe that uh, those who are seriously committed to investing behind this 
would be able to find the financial investors more than willing to back them up. We have seen both Tata and Mahindra being able to raise significant uh, amount of uh, equity at a very healthy valuation to start with. And we also are awaiting the Ola IPO to come. And their confidence also comes from the fact that you know the, the uh, equity markets are willing to bet behind this uh, sector. Uh, now, the second bucket of uh, investors, which are global cell manufacturers, predominantly from the Far Eastern countries like Korea, China, and Japan, uh, we have seen that the gigafactory investment activity, gigafactory project activity, gigafactory capacity buildup activity is at a high pitch right now in Europe and North America. And many of these players have made significant commitments to set up capacities in these markets. Uh, let's uh, you know accept the fact that Europe and North America are significantly bigger markets with the demanding higher capacities uh, than India is, uh, and hence they are you know fairly stretched on their bandwidth in setting up projects in Europe and in North America, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act of the U.S. government, uh, there have been a you know, significant inflow of uh, project establishment currently happening in the uh, United States and Canada. So at this point of time, the second set of investors, the global cell manufacturers, haven't really moved aggressively forward to set up their own facilities in India. Uh, that's borne out by the fact that uh, the earlier version of ACCPLI bidding process could not attract any serious uh, global cell players. But my feeling is that just a you know a, a question of time. Uh, once they establish their capacities in Europe or North America, once the Indian market gains momentum from where it is right now in terms of the demand trajectory, uh, I don't think the global cell manufacturers can continue to ignore India. And of course, the third set of investors are those who are willing to collaborate through some kind of a partnership with uh, uh, Indian OEMs. Uh, while there is nothing that's been publicly announced, we already had a recent news item that talked about Mahindra securing their uh, uh, you know, powertrain requirements in general, but specifically the battery cell requirements through the VW arrangement, which means Indian OEMs are looking for strategic supply chain relationships and some of those supply chain relationships could even uh, you know, translate into partnerships that would lead to setting up uh, uh, gigafactories in India. Uh, I know that's a little long run answer, but I think when this question comes it up- It makes complete sense. It makes global, complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one last question before uh, we ask about the uh, how, what the future holds. Uh, the battery manufacturing ecosystem depends on critical minerals like uh, lithium, cobalt, nickel, palladium. So, how do you see India's efforts in securing these assets? Uh, while we can have processing facilities, uh, you can easily have processing facilities for lithium, but nickel is another mineral which is very important and critical for lithium-ion batteries. Just wanted to, you know, you to share your views on how do you see this whole critical mineral uh, narrative that is around and uh, do you think we are doing enough to secure these uh, critical supplies? You know, as Ade says, dollar will flow to where markets are. I'm sure that there is a supply chain solution that will evolve uh, mm -hmm. in, as the market, uh, you know, demand grows here. Today we are able to secure cells. 
tomorrow when we set up the capacity here, would it be too challenging to secure raw materials required to make those battery cells? In my view, that's not you know a huge say. The challenge is more about being able to produce cells in India in an economic and commercially competitive manner. Mm-hmm. And one of the cost components that influences the competitiveness of uh, uh, you know cells made in India would be the materials sold through various supply chain arrangements. And as we go along, uh, we would probably see adoption of the appropriate uh, chemistry for the cell making in India on two factors. One, that fits well into the Indian uh, application conditions, and two, where the supply chain risks are minimized. So we will have to probably watch this space very carefully, uh, looking at you know what are those critical minerals that will be necessary to make cells in India that are competitive as well as compatible with the Indian application requirements and what kind of uh, technology choices that you know the players would make here players include the stakeholders including the OEMs as well as the cell makers i'm confident that you know the, the the we are unlikely to face a situation of not being able to source what we want but once we are evolving the landscape of what exactly we want to make in india to meet our requirements uh, the ability to create sourcing channels domestic capability uh, long-term supply contracts is something that the corporate world would be able to handle. Yeah, Mr. Samudra, before we speak about what the future holds, it I think it's more important we discuss how at Amara Raja you are trying to, you know, navigate through this uh, emerging, uh, I, I must say, opportunities and, and uh, you know, of um, creating a battery ecosystem. You, you're in the midst of, you know, setting up a giga factory. Uh, you yourself had had now this advanced cell the arm which which are which is more exploratory you'd be looking at more technologies which are coming in so sir if you could you know take us to this how amara raja is uh, you know uh, navigating through this and uh, what your plans for your giga factory sir i would like to step back a little here to you know give, give a perspective of where we stand today uh, see, Amaraja started it the battery uh, business almost 35 years ago, way back in uh, 1989. Uh, then we saw an opportunity to bridge a gap in what the customer wanted versus what the market was offering. I mean, the, you know, the industry was offering at that time. And India at the time was relatively nascent in the battery sector. We were importing a lot of batteries, so we were importing a lot of materials, so we were importing a lot of capital equipment at that time. And the journey over the last 35 years is a very classic case of uh, the you know journey of India towards Alpenerper. Today, mm-hmm. as a snapshot view of 2024, the Ladasar battery industry, where we are by revenue, you know, the second largest player, and by our market position in many sectors, industry leader. Uh, when we look at the Indian battery industry on the Ladasar side, uh, you would be surprised to actually recognize that. Uh, uh, this industry has really made India truly Atmanabhar in that respect. Uh, we are actually a net exporter of batteries today from where we started being a significant importer of batteries. We have globally uh, competitive and uh, global scale manufacturing facilities. The manufacturing process technology is contemporary to what, what's being done in uh, very mature markets like China, Europe, and North America. Our products that are developed and offered to the customers here meet a lot, you know, a lot more demanding uh, needs of the customers here. And hence, you know, Amaraja itself is able to export to 50 different countries. 
And uh, the markets that we export outside India, the Amaraja product, the Amaran branded products are sold at a premium there. Now, the reason I'm saying that is Amaraja over the period participated, participated in this evolution of the industry where India was able to build the capabilities and strengths required to become uh, very, very self-sufficient. But then from a corporate perspective, we realized that there is a need for us to recalibrate our strategy from a product manufacturer into providing solutions and products to emerging opportunities. So that's why the middle of last year, we have renamed our company as Amaraja Energy and Mobility Limited from Amaraja Batteries Limited because we believe that both energy and the mobility sector would require a lot of energy storage technology uh, solutions. So as part of that, we are going beyond that asset capability into advanced cell chemistry capabilities. Of course, today, lithium takes the center stage. So we have clearly charted out an investment plan to the tune of about $1.2 billion, close to about 9,500 crores, to set up a 16 gigawatt hour uh, cell making facility, a five gigawatt hour pack making facility, and one of, India is one of the most advanced uh, energy research and innovation center in the city of Hyderabad. Uh, that's the current uh, you know, roadmap that we have. We believe by 2030, we would be able to achieve all these milestones, both in the terms of capacity and the technology capability. But then I think that would be only, you know, some part of the journey because a much more exciting future lays ahead of us. But beyond the battery cells, packs, and, you know, solutions around that, uh, we are also offering solutions associated with charging infrastructure and the solutions associated with energy storage systems. So it's a fairly comprehensive range of products and services starting from various mobility vehicles, start two-wheelers, three-wheelers, passenger cars, commercial vehicles, farm equipment. On the energy storage side, starting from home to commercial, industrial and the grid scale energy storage solutions is what we are completely you know uh, mapping and uh, we would be actively offering these solutions as we go along so one quick supplementary question you spoke about um, amara raja charting into uh, charging infrastructure now charging infrastructure is at present uh, the main plank on which e-mobility will run whether we're running on highways and Sir, how do you see the growth here on charging infrastructure? Because there are a couple of challenges. Grid stability is also a challenge there. I think, uh, you know, the classic case of chicken and egg is what's being referred to by many people. Yeah. Uh, you know, people who are considering buying a vehicle says, do I have enough charging infrastructure? People who are willing to invest behind charging infrastructure, do we have enough vehicles on the road? In my view, uh, there has to be an effort of creating charging infrastructure so that the anxiety related to charging network availability is sorted out. It would mean putting money up front and then you know waiting for the demand to grow up. Technically, it's not a challenge. I know grid stability is being talked about, but there are technology solutions available to address that. Thankfully for India, a large portion of our mobility needs are met by light electric vehicles or light vehicles, whether it is IC or electric uh, light vehicles. So the charging light vehicles doesn't put as much stress on the grid at a single point of time. You know, it's it, it's not like a Tesla supercharger of 350 kilowatt 
what we need is yeah. more like sub 10 kilowatt chargers but a lots of them at your home at your office at you know shopping malls so that's what we need a much more uh, a spread out uh, you know small sized chargers to take care of the light electric vehicles uh, so uh, th there are clear solutions as part of that in fact we are uh, having a product range that addresses this light electric vehicle mobility chargers which are portable which are you know all weather resistant and much easier to just plug into any electric uh, ac socket that you have uh, you should be able to take care of two wheeler and three wheeler charging uh, so in my view charging infrastructure development is not a technologically challenging issue yes mm -hmm. it's uh, we need upfront investments to build the infrastructure and i'm sure there are enough entrepreneurship in the country including the government support build the charging infrastructure faster than the demand arises so, uh, sir, before we bring this invigorating uh, chat to an end, if you could, you know, uh, explain to our uh, listeners, what does the next 10 years entail for the EV sector in the country with respect to battery ecosystem, charging ecosystem? How should we view this? Uh, since as you explained the past that we, a real, real acceleration came post the COVID years, uh, what, what should we expect in the next 10 years? Uh, again, there I would like to define uh, two phases. And let's yeah. say 2030 as a market area in between, and then look at 2035. Uh, okay. Our research, uh, in collaboration with you know many other research agencies, says that um, the the adoption of electric vehicle will be at its fastest in the two-wheeler and three-wheeler segment. Uh, you know, by 2030. We should see perhaps about 40% of uh, two wheelers made would be EVs, and uh, which means going by the you know CM projections, we should see probably about 10 to 11 million two wheeler uh, vehicles, uh, electric vehicles being made in that year, equivalent to about 40 45% of the total vehicles uh, manufactured. Uh, three wheelers will be a much higher number, or at almost at 70 to 80%. But in terms of actual numbers, it will be much lower than two-wheelers. But in terms of penetration, it will be 70 to 80%. Passenger vehicles is an important segment to watch for. I think there is a general consensus that at least 15% of the passenger vehicles made in the year 2030 would be electric vehicle. I'm talking about pure electric vehicle. There could be hybrids also, but uh, at this point of time, I'm referring to the battery electric vehicles. And assuming that the market would have been more than 6 million passenger vehicles in 2030, we are talking almost a million electric vehicles being made at the time. And then, of course, we have buses and the commercial vehicles that have a slightly different dynamics. It's going to be a little challenging for long-haul uh, commercial vehicles to get into battery uh, electrification. We'll have to look at alternative fuels as probably a way of uh, decarbonizing the long-haul you know, commercial vehicles. Uh, but all put together, if I were to look at 2030 as a marker year, the mobility sector alone should create a demand to the tune of about 100 to 120 gigawatt hour, considering these numbers. Now, in addition to that, there should be another 25, 30 gigawatt hours of stationary storage demand for batteries. So, you know, as somebody very closely associated with battery industry, I'm looking at the demand for batteries in 2030 to the tune of 125 to 150 gigawatt hour. Now, that's a substantial number. Uh, I know globally the numbers might be becoming bigger and bigger, but uh, by any stretch of imagination, getting a manufacturing and demand scenario 
of about 125 to 150 gigawatt hour is a good you know uh, achievement now this is where a little bit of crystal ball gazing comes in when you want to look at next five years you have created momentum by 2030 hopefully and a lot of electrification is happening on the power trains but then what kind of technological shifts might drive this growth further enabling the accelerated adoption for electric vehicles or will there be some kind of you know a uh, disruption that's going to happen here uh, the battery technology itself will continue to evolve today we are talking about nmc lfp lithium uh, cells but there is a significant effort going in trying to achieve two or three things uh, one is of course a higher energy density so that uh, you can pack more into the vehicle or you can make smaller packs for the same range uh, the second one is about increasing the speed of charging, fast charging requirement. And of course, the third is enhancing the life of the battery. A lot of effort is going in, and I'm actually very happy that after 30 plus years in this industry, I'm seeing, you know, there is a confluence of multiple technological uh, methods and capabilities coming in to build smarter batteries. So we have seen digital methods being adopted, and a lot of physics-based modeling is being done. All of this is likely to lead to uh, batteries that can be charged faster, batteries that are uh, higher energy density, and batteries that will last longer. So I think all these things will enable to make the vehicles more affordable, more reliable, and less hassle for people to own an electric vehicle. So 2035, we might see the order of magnitude of growth and demand could be significantly higher than what we saw by 2030 as a prediction. So one last question. How are big established players like yours uh, looking at this battery recycling? Because as it is clear that all the requirements might not be available through processing and getting new metals and mineral, uh, materials, how are big players, established players like, players like battery recycling? I think the growth of battery industry will be incomplete without having a circular economy framework. The government has recognized that and then issued a new set of battery waste management rules, BWMR, in August 2023. And uh, there are certain uh, clear uh, you know, guidelines or uh, statutes that are established in this BWMR that makes the producers, the manufacturers and sellers uh, you know, responsible for what is seen as extended producer responsibility, which means you are expected to collect certain percentage of the batteries that you have sold, do, do, uh, you know, when they reach their end of life. And this percentage collection is only going up with each year. That's the statute. But in terms of industry, there's already quite a few startups in India which are, you know, trying to build recycling facilities try new methods of recycling to make it more viable, more sustainable. And uh, that effort will continue to go on. Today, they are fed in terms of the end-of-life products more from the consumer uh, gadgets like mobile phones and laptops and digital cameras, the batteries that are going into them. They, they call it as an urban mining, which means they're actually taking the used batteries from these devices. But that's not enough when the demand for uh, new batteries goes up. And we'll have to see that the circular economy framework is very effective. Uh, I think people, as far as we are concerned, we already have uh, uh, you know, an MOU with a couple of recycling facilities in India. So whatever 
process scrap or manufacturing wastage that we generate and any of the field return batteries that we get from our customer, we give it to these people under a contract. They recycle them. Uh, in recycling, there are two stages. There is something that you generate as black mass, which is the phase one. And then there is a refining that you do using black mass to get to battery grade materials out of that. Uh, the phase one is relatively established and easy uh, in India. It's possible today to create black moss. But the phase two, where you're refining the black moss to get battery-grade materials is where you know technology becomes a little bit more complex. But we're very confident that as the new battery manufacturing system evolves, the recycling ecosystem also will evolve uh, e equally well. And hence, India should be aiming for a true circular economy framework here. Thank you so much, Mr. Samudrala. You know, putting uh, over three decades of experience within 30 minutes is quite a feat. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure our listeners will come out really educated out of it. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your patience. Pleasure Have talking to you, Rishi. Thank you so much for getting me here.